We're doing a series this fall called Why We Gather Together. And, uh, and just trying to think about why do we do this every week, week after week, both on Sundays as well as in small groups and spend time with one another in the body of Christ, in the church. And, uh, and today, I think this is about the sixth sermon in a series or so, and we're going to kind of, this is about halfway through, maybe a bit more than that. And today we're going to slow down and we're going to both kind of recap and summarize where we've been so far and also look ahead to where we're going for the rest of the fall. This series will take us up to Advent, which is the first Sunday in December. And so um, this is just something that, that we're just going to spend the season on really thinking about what is it that together we are called to be as the, the body of Christ. And in that final passage in Ephesians 2, you can even turn back there with me real quick that Nancy read, and then we're going to especially be in this section in chapter 4, which is such a great section. There are two images, and these are not the only images that Scripture uses of the body of Christ, of the church, of the people of God. But I do think that there are two of the central ones the New Testament gives us. At the end of chapter 2, we are described as the people of God as a temple that God is building in Jesus through the Spirit. And in chapter 4, we are described as a body of which we are many members and parts, hands and feet and eyes and ears, that is growing up to maturity. And, and today we're going to think about these two images together. And if you're looking at the end of chapter 2, I want you to notice that even though the images are different, a temple is a building. It's, it's something that's just a structure. It's kind of impersonal. And a body is something organic. It's something relational. It's something you have an identity in. That even though those are very different in many ways, there's a ton of connections. At the end of chapter 2, it talks about that this entire temple, this entire building, verse 21, is being joined together. And that's the language that shows up again in chapter 4, that the body is joined together by all the sinews and joints and all the members of the body, that the temple and the body are both filled with God's spirit, which was poured out by Jesus when he ascended into heaven, that in both passages, Jesus is either the cornerstone and the foundation of the building that is the most important part. You get that wrong, the rest of the building is gone. The other day, I guess it was about a week ago, I don't think they're back yet, but Euning and Miles got married recently. And some of you know, both Euning and Miles are urban planners, and they went to Columbia for grad school to learn this, and they pointed out a building that I would have never noticed in lower Manhattan when we all went down to the courthouse for them to get married about a week and a half ago, and there's this building that was just under construction, and if they hadn't told me, I would have just thought, they're just building this, and it's getting ready to go up, and they said that's actually been sitting there for three years because the foundation is wrong, and they need to tear the entire thing down. And so there is this skyscraper that's about half finished, and it's got cranes next to it, and it has been sitting there for three years because they got the foundation wrong, and the whole thing has to come down. And so if in chapter 2, Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation of the temple, in chapter 4, he is the head of the body. And so Jesus has a very primary place in both of these images. In both passages, there's acknowledgement of the role of leaders, of apostles and prophets being part of the foundation with Jesus. In chapter 5, it gets brought, sorry, chapter 4 gets brought into the present, not just the apostles and the prophets, Old Testament, New Testament, but evangelists and pastors and shepherds and teachers. There's a role for leaders in a certain sense. We'll think about that in a second, but maybe most importantly for us in this season, in both passages, there is this idea that every single person is an integral, important part of what God is doing. In the temple, every single one of you is a living stone. In the body, every single one of you is a part of the body with a role to play. And the growth, the, 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 the 
fulfillment, the, the completion of what God is doing in the temple and in the body is connected to every part playing its role in relationship to the rest of the temple, the rest of the body together. And so these are things that if you've been with us this season, we've been looking at this in 1 Corinthians. We started about a month and a half ago in Acts chapter 2. We'll do a little summary and recap today. And then I want to get really, really practical in the second half today to kind of launch us into the rest of the fall. And even I'm thinking that in some of our congregational meetings in the season, the season to come, that this might be some of the things that we talk about. What would it look like for us to embody this even more than we do now? Um, I, I am, even though I'm the pastor of the church, I'm just one person. We are a congregational church. We are called together to discern God's will. But some of the stuff, and I'll say this at the very end in just a few minutes, some of the stuff that we're talking about in this series, some of the stuff that we're going to see in Ephesians 4 is very central to when I think about when I pray about, when I just spend time talking to you guys, praying in God's presence, thinking about what it means to be a faithful pastor in the church, when I think about what do I hope neighborhood church looks like in five years, some of this stuff is central to what I hope is the most different, the most growth, the most maturity for us as a church. And so let's pray and then let's look at Ephesians 4 in particular. Father, every week right now, we are gathering together as we always do, as this church has for about 50 years now in lower Manhattan and in churches throughout church history and throughout the world, they gather together in person every week through the years, the decades, the centuries, the millennia. And would you give us more insight into why it is that you are calling a people to gather together, to be a temple filled with your spirit, to be a body of which Jesus is the head, but we are the members of and would you help us to, to understand more practically, more deeply, and also for our hearts to be transformed so that we would aspire to this and long for this and love this vision and be committed to it of what the, the church is here to be and to do and to say and to, and to exist as in the world. We acknowledge we need your grace. We need your spirit. A body without the spirit is dead. A temple without your presence in it is just an empty building. We need your spirit to be among us every week, all the time, to join us to you, Lord Jesus, to join us to one another. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, breathe into us as the people of God, as the temple of God, as the body of Christ again today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to do this real quick, and, and it's good to step back every once in a while. Um, a, a phrase that I often find helpful that I hear this generation, this contemporary generation, all we often use is that in life as individuals, it's really easy to lose the plot. It's really easy to wake up one day and be like, what am I even doing? What is my life even about? How does all this stuff in the past, all the stuff I'm doing in the present, all the stuff that might come in the future, what is the thread that runs through this? What is the story that I'm in? It's so easy to lose the plot. And so I want to start today just by asking us this very basic question. And it's one that as a church, as a, as a body of believers, we should ask regularly, not just, not even primarily about each of us individually, but about this church corporately, about this city, about our nation, about this time period, ultimately about the world and about history, it's a very simple question, but it is really challenging, which is, what is, what is God up to in the world? 
What is, what is God doing in the world? What is he doing in Palestine and Israel right now? What is he doing in New York City? What is he doing here and here and there? In that moment of time, that era of history back then, and time still to come, what is God doing in the world? And I want to name something out loud that I'll bet a lot of you have felt before, at least implicitly, and maybe some of you have even been able to articulate it, which is that when you read the Bible, it feels truncated. It feels parochial. It feels narrow. It feels like it doesn't address most of what's going on in the universe. It's focused on a very small group of people overall. It, whereas you learn the name of Moses, you never even learn the name of the Pharaoh that was over Israel in that period of time. Whereas there's a lot of focus in Acts and in the New Testament on the, um, on the church, on the body of Christ. You learn very little about Roman and Greek politics. You learn very little about the Persians and the Babylonians. They tend to be marginal characters in so many things that we consider important today. Politics, economics, psychology, sociology, history, um, so many things in the world. The Bible just doesn't talk about all that much. It feels like the Bible is very kind of small and narrow. It only gives us a very kind of narrow glance into the human story. And yet I think that if we can see what's actually going on, that the Bible's focus is actually incredibly illuminating. And so I just want to point out a couple of things that maybe are obvious, but just want us to be able to articulate them, is that after there's this universal beginning to the human story in Genesis 1 through 11, where God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates all the nations of the world and their languages, he creates everything that exists in the world, then starting in Genesis 12, the story really narrows. And it focuses on this guy, Abraham. And then it focuses on his descendants. And from there on, the story is almost exclusively interested on what God is doing in this very small, humanly speaking, very insignificant group of people. Moses spends all of his time for 80 years focusing on this small group of people. The story tells, for the rest of the Old Testament, the story of 12 tribes that are very nomadic, that are very economically and militarily and politically very insignificant. And then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus spends the three years of ministry he has as an adult with 12 guys who are very unimpressive. And a group of people he spends, it's a small group of people he spends all of his time with. And then when you get to the rest of the New Testament, you get to people like Paul in Ephesians. When you get to people like John and Peter and James, they are spending all of their time working with local churches working with small groups of people, and I think that there is something really significant to be seen from that. I'm going to read this at the beginning of the bulletin that I emailed out. It's not in the smaller version. John Howard Yoder said this, the primary work of God in history is the calling of a people, whether in the old covenant with Israel or in the new with the church. The church is then not simply the bearer of the message of reconciliation in the way a newspaper or a telephone company can bear any message with which it is entrusted. Once you hand off the message, who cares about the telephone company? Who cares about the phone company or the newspaper? Nor is the church simply the result of a message as an alumni association is the product of a school or the crowd in a theater 
is the product of the reputation of the film or the play, that men and women are called together into a new social wholeness is itself the primary work of God in history, which gives meaning to the rest of history. And so as Christians, let's just even back up even more specifically. If you want to answer the question, what is God up to? It is central to a Christian way of looking at things, Christian faith, Christian conviction, to say, look at the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is our central insight into what God is up to in the world. And when you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Jesus is, if not exclusively, inordinately focused on calling a group of people to follow him, to form them, and then to send them out. And then the New Testament continues that. Ultimately, and I think we see it in Ephesians 4, we certainly see it throughout the New Testament, that the the most simple way I would summarize the calling of the church is to continue in the world what Jesus was doing during his human earthly life. That we are now filled with the spirit to be his body. I do not want to claim, and this is another conversation for another time, and this gets very complex. I do not want to claim that I have or anybody else has a full answer to the question, what is God up to in the world? There are a million things that God is up to that I have no idea and that none of us will know until the ultimate future retrospectively. But, and so I don't want to claim that God only works in the church and through the church, but I do want to claim that God is primarily working in the church and through the church, that God is primarily working in his son, Jesus, and now through the spirit of Jesus that is poured out in the world. Let me just give you a couple of snapshots in the New Testament. Some of these you'll be familiar with. Some of them you might um, not be familiar with. They might strike you in a new way. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out to announce the kingdom of God. The Roman Empire doesn't care about these guys. The power players in Israel don't care about these guys. And yet Jesus sends them out. And as they come back and they report on, we told people about you, Jesus, and we announced the kingdom of God, and, and signs and wonders and miracles were done. People got healed. People came to repentance and came to be your followers. Jesus said, as you went out, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. That is, this is the moment where evil is overthrown and the kingdom of God is established through these followers of Jesus. At the end of Romans, Paul's great letter, it's very, very often missed and ignored. At the end of the letter, in chapter 16, he gives one final promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not under Jesus' feet, but under your feet, plural, that the church is the instrument, the vehicle by which God is primarily working in the world, which is why Moses and why Paul And why Jesus and why any pastor who knows what he or she is doing spends most of their time and energy on you guys. And not on this politics, economics, not on this over there, over there. It's not to say that those things aren't important, but they are secondary. So here is a very basic, but I think provocative. I've been convinced of this for a long time. If you've known me for a while, you know that I think this. I want to persuade you of this. If this is new or if this is not the way you look at the world. A double-sided thesis. The first part of the thesis is this, that the biggest problem in every moment of history is the unfaithfulness of the church that that always constitutes the gravest dilemma in the human condition. When the church does not look like Jesus, when it is not mature, 
when it is not speaking the truth in love, when it is tossed by every wave of doctrine, every deceitful scheme that it learns from the culture around it and getting off track, when it is not building itself up as a healthy body and as a temple filled with the Spirit by all the spiritual gifts that are given there, that constitutes the biggest obstacle to what God is doing in the world. Nothing is a bigger problem in the universe than churches that are off track than churches that are unhealthy, than churches that are building on the wrong foundation and just later on need to be torn down, that this is the biggest problem in the world. And second, that the world needs nothing more than it needs churches that are actually temples filled with the Holy Spirit and, and bodies of people that when you look at them, you say, That's, that, that reminds me of what Jesus was doing in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. That reminds me of how Jesus spoke to people, how Jesus loved people, how Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. That is that, that the, the claim that we are the temple is a claim that God both dwells in us and is present among us in a way that he is not present anywhere else in the world. And the claim that we are his body is a claim that when Jesus acts, when Jesus works, when Jesus is doing things in the world, we are quite literally his hands in his feet, in his eyes, in his ears, that this puts an enormous importance on the church, not because we're so great, not at all, but because this is how God has chosen to work. And so when we ask, what is God up to? The New Testament, ultimately the scriptures overall, relentlessly send us back to pay attention to what's going on in the people of God. What God is up to in the world is always primarily connected to what is going on in the people of God. If you want to keep your finger there in Ephesians 4, let's do just a little recap and, and go back to 1 Corinthians 14. And if you don't have this, it's totally okay. I'm only going to remind you of one thing that I did last week. And if you weren't here last week, I'll, I'll just introduce you to this very briefly. Um, we've been spending about a month in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. We will come back one final time next week to 1 Corinthians 14. And I made a claim last week, I'll remind you of if you were here and introduce you to if you weren't, that I think the most disobeyed command in the entire Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I think at least today in Western Christianity, on average, the command of God, the command of Jesus through the spirit that we most habitually ignore that we most consistently live as if it's not true and do something else is in chapter 14, and specifically it's in verse 26. What then, this is the conclusion, not just to everything he's saying in chapter 14, but really all of chapter 12, 13, and 14, spiritual gifts, love, building up the body. And at the end of chapter 14 in verse 26, Paul says, what then, brothers and sisters, whenever you gather together, which is our question in the season. Why do we gather together? Whenever you gather together, brothers and sisters, and he says two things. One, every single one of you brings a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. And I think that's not exhaustive. It's just a, a summary of spiritual gifts. Every single one of you, if you're a Christian, has been given gifts by the Spirit. And every week, I said this, we often in, in Western Christianity use language of come to Jesus empty-handed, come to God empty-handed. And there's, of course, profound truth to that. But in another sense, I want to say, do not come to church empty-handed. Come with your gifts 
come with a hymn. Brandon and Chantine and Haley blessed us with their gifts as worship leaders this morning. Bless us with a good question that you asked to draw somebody out. Bless somebody by serving them with a gift you have. That a church that, that understands what it's supposed to be is a church where everybody is participating and not just participating, but with their gifts. So every single one of us, when we gather together, nobody is empty-handed. Everybody either has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. And we could extend that list by a lot more things. Again, it's not exhaustive. And the second thing is in what everybody brings, one thing which is all different from one another, everybody brings different gifts. Everybody is a different part of the body. Everybody is functioning in a different part of the building, a different part of the temple. But here's one thing we all have in common, that all of us are doing everything we do to build up the rest of the body to bless the rest of the body, which we talked about this last week. In 1 Corinthians 14, this is the big word, build up, and this is what love looks like practically. That we don't come with our spiritual gifts to show off and to get attention. We don't come to primarily enhance our own experience of God, like it's your personal roller coaster or amusement park, whatever that is. And we don't come in order to turn other people more into what we want them to be with our own agendas. I'm right, you're wrong, as I'm gonna use my gifts in order to shape you more in my image. We come to build other people up. We come to build up the body. We come to build up the temple. I have been convinced for a long time that, that of course, this is a subjective claim. And, and, and usually, if you ask most Christian leaders, they would say, what's the most disobeyed verse in the New Testament, the most disobeyed command? The, the classic answers would be sex, money, and power. And certainly, we disobey a lot of those. Um, I would actually guess that even more than those, if there was a second one I would suggest, I would actually guess it's more like loving our enemies is the other really likely candidate for a command that we habitually disobey and convince ourselves that we're being righteous even while we disobey that. But all things being equal, I could be wrong. For my money, when I look at churches, when I think about us, I think about we are so far from that vision in verse 26, of all of us coming. And just so you know, so you don't feel primarily a rebuke here, I think this is primarily my fault. I think this is primarily our faults as leaders. We set church up so that you come and you hear a TED Talk, and you watch a musical concert, and then you go have some coffee and a snack, and you do a little small talk, and then you go home. It's like, where was there even an opportunity, even if you had something in your hand that you were going to use to build up? And so one of my desires as a pastor is that in the years to come, we would think through, what does this need to look like on Sundays? What does this need to look like in small groups? What does our time together need to look like so that we can actually obey every single person brings a gift in order to build the rest of the body up? And then that would be what we are doing in both Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. And go ahead and turn back there. In both of these passages, the main thing that God desires that Jesus is doing is, I said this last week, if you go up near Columbia on the Upper West Side, West Harlem, one of the most famous buildings in New York City, one of the most famous buildings architecturally in all of America is St. John's the Divine on, I think it's around 113th in Amsterdam, this beautiful building, and it began being built, I think, in the late 1800s, and it's still not finished. Now, that's because they keep running out of money, um, and then every once in a while they get more money and then they start building it again. It shouldn't have actually taken this long, but, it's, but here's one thing that's always true. The church is never finished as a building. The body has never yet reached full maturity. And so there is a sense in which, to use a very corny, cliched expression in our culture, a healthy church is always going to have a growth mindset. A healthy church is always going to have a sense that we are not even close 
to what we are supposed to be yet. There is still so far to go. There is still so much to become that we have not become yet. And ultimately, the idea here is Jesus claims in the Gospels that after his death and his resurrection, he is the risen temple of the Lord. To say that we are now the temple of God, the temple of Christ, is to say that we are now playing the role that Jesus was playing in the world during his life. And to say that we are his body is to say Jesus' body, and, and not to get polemical or off track here, but this moment, the Lord's table, which we'll do in a few minutes, has been very controversial throughout church history of where exactly Jesus' physical body is in this moment. And Protestants have always had a sense that whatever else you want to say about the wine and the grape juice and the crackers we're going to give you in a couple of minutes, that this is not Jesus' physical body. Because Jesus' body is at the right hand of God in heaven, seated at his right hand, ruling over all things. We are given the spirit so that in this moment we are connected to Jesus. We are connected to one another. But the body of Christ in the world is not these elements. It's you guys. You are the body of Christ. You are the activity of Jesus in the world. You are the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world. And the great need is for us to continue to grow up into that, to mature into that. And so all of this, I think, until just the last couple of minutes will be recap. But let's just recap a couple of things that we see in this passage and that we've seen throughout the series. Here's one that I haven't mentioned before. I want to put it this way. It's in the title of the sermon. To say that the church is like a building, like a temple that is indwelt by the Spirit, and then it's a body where we are all members and that Jesus is working through as the head, is to say that the church is always both an institution and an organism. And if you only define the church as an institution, or you only define the church as spontaneous relationships, you will fall short of what it is. There is a great book on ministry, and and Stephen Romeo will like this because we have one of these at our 269 Bleecker Street building. Whenever Stephen goes over to his community garden, do you guys know what a trellis is? A trellis and a vine? So a trellis is like this wooden thing that's often like hanging up against a building, and as a vine, or as anything that grows organically grows, The larger it gets and the more life there is in it, the more unwieldy it becomes. Even right now, one of the things we talk about a lot in this church right now is we often have 80, 100 people coming here on Sundays, and a year ago it was maybe 40 or 50, and a year before that it was maybe 20, and every stage we get a little bigger, it becomes a little more difficult for us to be healthy. Because every inch, every foot the vine gets bigger, it will grow in malformed ways unless it has a trellis guiding it, unless there is an institution that connects us to the past, that gives us vision for the future. Otherwise, we forget who we are and we just do what comes naturally. And yet, on the other hand, and here's maybe the most important thing, the trellis serves the vine. The institution serves the organism. Insofar as we are a temple, we are a living temple filled with God's spirit. But the really, I think, deepest thing is that we are the household of God. We are the family of God. And so if we understand who we are, we'll always strive to balance that there's got to be institutional stuff here. We really do need to have leaders. We really do need to have an order where we do this. And we don't just show up every week and we're like, ah, what should we do this week? Which you can kind of do when, you know, a movement is getting off the ground or it's just a group of friends. But there's got to be an institutional framework here, but that itself has to serve the relational dynamics. That's to serve that we are a living body. And so in both of these things, we are the presence in the dwelling place of God. To say that we are a temple 
where the Spirit of God dwells in, and that's an Old Testament image, to say that we are the body of Christ and Jesus is our head, is seated at the right hand of God, is to say that the church, as the body, as the temple, as the gathered people of God, that this is the meeting place of heaven and earth every week. This is the only place where heaven and earth touches together every single week when Christians gather together. When Jesus says, where two or three of you gather together, I tell you, I am with you. That's not a claim that you're by yourself without Jesus when you're on your own, but it is a claim that Jesus is doing something when we gather together that he is not when we are individually apart from one another. And so we are the meeting place of heaven and earth, that we are the activity of God's continued ministry in the world, that the church is called to continue the story of Jesus in the ministry of Jesus, which is why any church as an institution that understands what it's here to do is going to take, we're not doing it today, and it's been a while since we've done it, but why it's always going to take baptism very seriously. Because when we baptize someone, we are enlisting them into this project. We are saying they are now a stone in the temple. They are now a part of the body, and they now represent Jesus with us in the world. This is ultimately Um, what we are called to be. The second thing, and I mentioned it already, so I'll do it very briefly, is that in chapter two, Jesus is the foundation of the temple. In chapter four, he is the head of the body. When we looked at Acts two, at the very beginning of the series, we talked about how the first thing we're told about the early church when they gathered together is they sat under the apostles' teachings. That, That to say that we are a church is to say that we're not primarily interested in what Nick Nowak thinks or says, or Chris Kim, or Andy Che, or Josh, or Stan, or Shantine, or Sam, or Laura, anybody else, that that we come together to listen to Jesus. We come together to reflect on the word of the Lord. We are disciples. We are learners, that we are under the word of God, that Jesus is our head, that Jesus is our foundation. In Ephesians 4, it's a very famous statement. If you want to look at it with me, in chapter 4, right after in verse 15, he warns us against being tossed to and fro by every fad in culture in history. He says, rather, instead of doing that, sorry, that's verse 14, rather, instead of doing that, verse 15, speak the truth and love to each other. And here's something that's really interesting. The the word speak is not there. It's it's literally the word truth turned into a verb. Literally, truthing in love. We are to be pulled up. So it's not limited to our words. Now, that's a really awkward way to put it, which is why no translation says it. But let's put it this way more broadly. Being truthful with one another in love, which is not just about words. It's about saying that the ultimate test of everything we do is not, let's take a majority vote, even though we're a congregational church and we do believe that normally the best way to discern God's will is to collectively do that, but we're not a democracy. A democracy believes that the voice of the people is the voice of God, and that's not true. We can be wrong collectively. I can be wrong as a pastor. You can be wrong as a Christian, that as the church, we are under the lordship of Jesus, expressed through the apostles and the prophets, through his word. It's another way to say that we are a community of conscience and that our conscience needs to be shaped informed by the word of God. We gather to listen. We gather to be truthful in love. We gather together to grow up into maturity. And, and, and so the centrality of Jesus, even though Jesus is not physically here with us anymore, that Jesus is still the central player. 
Jesus is still the Lord over this body, the Lord over this temple. Jesus is still the foundation and the head. And so we constantly refer ourselves to him as the standard and as the criteria and as the judge of everything that we are and do and aspire to be. Next one is this, is in both passages, as I said, there's this idea that the church is to grow up into maturity, that the building is to be completed, to become the fullness of Jesus. And here's a phrase that I think I used last week, but I'm going to use just in these last couple of minutes, and then I hope we come back to it, that's central to both of these passages in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4, central in 1 Corinthians, central in the book of Acts, is what I'm going to call gifted participation, That when the church gathers together, we don't gather together to only or mainly listen to the pastor or listen to the music leaders. We don't primarily gather together to have elders and deacons do everything for us. We gather together for every single part of the body, every single stone in the temple with their gifts to participate in the building. Which means that if a year from now, if five years from now, we are more mature. We look more like Jesus as a body. We are a more architecturally sound temple in building. It will be primarily because of what each one of you brings and the way that you build up the rest of the church. In Ephesians 4, let's just look at this real quick. It is, I think, central to how we most often think wrongly. And again, this is mostly my fault, mostly our fault as leaders. We often think of, we even call somebody like me, I have been a full-time pastor for 20 years. I've, I've never done anything else as an adult. I've worked side jobs and I've done other stuff when I was in college and in high school and before that, but this has been the only thing I've done vocationally as an adult. And how do we usually describe somebody like me? Somebody who goes into ministry. And that is such an unfortunate choice of words. Because the point of pastors and shepherds and teachers and evangelists, according to Ephesians 4, look at it right there in verse 11. Why has God given us the Apostle Paul and the prophet Isaiah and Moses and Peter and James? Why do we have the scriptures? Why are we given evangelists who plant churches and shepherds and teachers so that those leaders might equip the rest of the saints, that's you guys, for the work of ministry? Ministry is your job, not primarily or only mine. My job is to help you step into the ministry that every single one of you is given. By the way, the word for ministry there is where we get the word deacon from. It's the idea of acts of service, acts of vocation, that every single one of you, the moment you become a Christian, you are called into ministry. You are called into service. You are called to make, not necessarily in terms of your time, most of you are not called into full-time vocational pastoral ministry. So I'm not saying start, you know, skipping out in your job and kind of mailing it in and start going to 16 Bible studies a week and put most of your time and energy into church. But I would say your best time and energy, your most important job as a human being and a Christian is to build up the Christian communities that you're a part of. And so let me say, this is the part where kind of like with financial giving, where if I was you guys, I would always wonder, like, this is a little too convenient for Nick. He's calling us to prioritize what his life and his job is about. And so let me say this. Most of you, humanly speaking, I think, I hope this isn't true, but humanly speaking, most of you will not be in New York City in 10 or 15 years. Most of you will spend most of the rest of your life somewhere else. And so let me say from that vantage point, make it your great ambition in life that wherever you are, 
And whatever else is going on in your life, you're single, you're married, you're suffering, you're rejoicing, you love your job, you hate your job, you're unemployed, whatever's going on, that's central to your sense of calling is I want the Christian community that I'm a part of to be healthier by the time I leave than when I got there. I want it to look more like Jesus than it was on the day I got there. I want my gifts and I want my participation to help it grow up into the temple and into the body that it is supposed to be. This is how the body grows. I am at best like a player coach on a team. Um, There is this long-standing tradition in Western Christianity that there is this sacred ministry, and we do stuff called ministry, and you are the passive recipients of it. And that is so unhealthy. And it's connected to why 1 Corinthians 14, 26, I think, is the most disobeyed verse in the New Testament, because we think pastors, they're the ones doing the ministry. You guys come and enjoy the talk. You guys come, enjoy the music, and then you're blessed. And then you kind of go home and you do your jobs and you go out to the real stuff that matters in your lives. But what we are here to do is to help you fulfill your role in the body of Christ in ministry. And so active participation and 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, last couple of weeks in love, not with an agenda. So that the building looks more like what Josh wants it to look like than what Andy wants it to look like, or more what I want it to look like more than what you want it to look like. But all of us would come in love, seeking to build up the community to look more like what Jesus wants it to look like, which means that we'll always be very open-handed with what we think the future will look like. We'll always have a sense of God. We just sang that song, right? God is always doing things we're not aware of, that we don't see, that we don't feel, that we can't anticipate ahead of time, but we all come in order to do this. And so as I end, I want to give a couple of really practical things. This is just, you know, abstract and theoretical. Here is something, I'll be 45 this summer. Um, a lot of you know this, for the third time in the last six months, even right now, and it's one of the reasons I feel like I'm a bit distracted, my back is hurting because I'm 45 years old. Three times in the last six months, I've done something to my back, which I never did when I was younger. And so I feel this in this season of life. But all of you know this, even if you're young and everything in your body feels good, do you ever step back and notice how much time and energy every single one of us has to put in every day to just brushing our teeth and washing our body with soap? Just brushing your hair and putting clothes on, washing your clothes. We put a lot of time and energy to just maintaining the health of our bodies. We have a really old building at 269 Bleecker Street. Um, not to worry anybody, but you see, like, there's cracks right there. there cr- this is an old building, too. This is built in the late 1800s. If you have an old building, which this one is, and 269 Bleecker Street is, if you ever own your own apartment, you ever own your own house, one of the things I loved about growing up as a city kid, anything broke, you called the landlord, they dealt with it. You own your own building, a big part of your agenda is just maintaining it so it doesn't fall apart. One of the things, there's a picture that, that was pretty famous a couple of years ago with Mark Zuckerberg standing up on a podium and kind of in front of a, a presentation. And, and the slogan in the back was, move fast and break things. Move fast, and it really just sums up a lot of the revolutionary spirit. We're always overturning things and starting from the ground up, reinventing the wheel. And a church that understands what's going on is going to move slow and repair things. It's going to move slow 
and restore things. If you resent that you have to brush your teeth two times a day, if you resent that you have to take a shower and wash your body with soap, if you resent that you need to do physical exercise, because why would I spend time doing that when I want to actually use my body doing out there? You actually don't know how to care for your body very well. If you resent that you have to, you know, every once in a while, we just ask everybody to come to 269 Bleecker Street and we just clean the building because that building gets so dirty so fast that a big part of church life is just maintaining the health of the body, is just maintaining the architectural soundness and cleaning the dirt in the building. Now, there is growth too, but one of the things that often trips us up is most of what we're called to do in love is to just brush our teeth and to just do the laundry and to just you know, clean the dust off the walls. And that's most of what we will do. But as we do that in love, we will actually find that we are growing into a more healthy body. And so here's a couple of things very practically as I end. Here's the way I would sum up what this vision looks like. I'm sure there's other ways to put it, more things that could be said, other things to be said, but here's how I put it. And we sang some stuff today that was here. A church that understands this vision is one, a church where everyone has a place where everyone has a place. Every single one of you is so important to the body of Christ. The body of Christ cannot be what it is called to be if any of you are passengers or spectators. Everyone has a place. It's 1 Corinthians 11. Paul rebukes them for the rich and the snotty and the elite, kind of implicitly excluding other people that they don't think are as great as them. Everyone is welcome and everyone has a place. And then I would say second, to flesh out even more, every single person is distinctive and valued, honored. Nobody do we look at and be like, well, Jesus has invited them, but man, are they not going to play an important role in what we need to be in the years to come. Every single person, you have a gift set in, in, in a background, and God works in you and through you differently than he does Trevor, and differently than he does Mary Sue, and differently than he does them. And every single one of those things is crucial to our body and crucial to the building that is being built. On the other hand, every single one of you is profoundly needy. And what I mean by that is most of what you need, the rest of the body needs to provide for you. And so if you try to go it alone, if you try to follow Jesus by yourself, if you spiritualize everything as a lone ranger, you will find that the the vision of Christianity in the New Testament just isn't true. It, It just isn't happening. Most of what we need, if you are a hand... Most, the, the, the most significant thing to say about a hand is that cut off from the rest of the body, it's pointless. Cut off from the rest of the body, it's hopeless. Cut off from the rest of the body, it's useless. A hand primarily needs the rest of the body, and that's true of every single body part. And so if it's true that we need you, it is also true that you need us. And a healthy church knows that. And then following up on that, I would say another thing that is true of a church that understands this is that every single one of us is secondary, that Jesus is the head, Jesus is the foundation. The church exists to invite all the nations who do not yet know the grace of God and Jesus in. This building and this body is not primarily about us. It's not primarily about our desires. It's not primarily about our enjoyment. We are here, as Bonhoeffer said over and over, for the sake of the world. Um, And then lastly, and this is where love comes up, and every single one is here in all of our diversity, in all of our differences, to build up the rest of the body, to build up the rest of the temple, that you have a a profoundly other-centered job description 
to glorify God in Christ, to build up other people. And so here is, and, and even maybe some of these things, just to ask the question regularly, is that true of us as a church? Are we a church where every single person has a place, where every single person is valued for who they are and not who they're not, and, and they're valued and they're honored in their distinctiveness, where we're all aware that we're needy and dependent on one another, rather than denying that or resenting that, where we're all secondary and pointing away from ourselves to Jesus and to others, here are some challenges to doing this, I think, and, and I'm going to end with this. The first one is this, and, and I don't have answers here. It's more because I want in the months and years to come that we would talk about this and dream about this and brainstorm about this. One of the challenges, I think, to being a, a community of gifted participation, where every single one of us, every single week, brings something for the building up of the rest of the body, is that we live in a culture, and it's not a bad thing, it's just to acknowledge it, where whether you're a newcomer, and this is your first time walking into church, and you're like, my... Am I going to lose, is my anonymity going to be taken away from me without my, you know, agreeing to that? Um, am I going to be asked as a newcomer to stand up and raise my hand at some point in the service? Um, that, that there's something about, so let's put it this way. If we're going to do this well, this needs to be invitational and not dominant. It's not that we put pressure on people, to, but to say that we invite, and at some point, if you're a member, we expect people to participate every single week. And here's the second one, and a challenge. There was a book a couple of years ago, I'll bet some of you have read it, by David Graeber. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, not say the full word because this is church, but it was called BS Jobs. Um, and the idea was that one of the things that, that's a malady in the modern world is that the jobs that people have to do are so meaningless. And they're so dehumanizing. You know, just to use, I don't think this is anybody's job. Certainly with AI, it's not going to be anybody's job for much longer. But if your job was to sit in front of a computer and just hit the R button every 90 seconds, it's kind of a parable of the modern world. That's a BS job. You don't have to be there. It's not connected to who you are. It doesn't really do anything that somebody else couldn't bring about. And it's kind of dehumanizing and meaningless. One of the challenges to a church that wants to be a culture that lives out 1 Corinthians 14, 26, is there need to be no BS jobs here. There need to be no, well, just to give you something to do, Diego and Christine are over there, and I'm so glad they're serving us right now right there, but this is not the primary use of their gifts. Anybody else could do this right now. If the only thing we have to give people is to run the PowerPoint slides, guys, thank you for running the PowerPoint slides. <laughs> this is an affirmation that Diego and Christine are so much more gifted than this. That churches that, that want to lean into this need to make sure that we don't create BS jobs just so that people have something to do. We need to create jobs that fit the gifts that people have. We need to create lanes for people to run in with all the grace that God has given to them, which means we can't say, here's what we're doing, fit yourself in. It means we need to look at the people that God has given us and say, what do we need to create for these gifts to be unleashed in every generation, which is one of the reasons a church is always going to look different from generation to generation. So a church that does this well, there's going to be no BS jobs. And the other way to say that is if you are participating the way that the New Testament calls us to, discovering what your spiritual gifts are, growing in your ability to use them, and having lanes carved out for you to run in them is going to be central to being part of the body of Christ for you. If you don't know whether you are a hand or a foot, or you have a sense, I think I am a foot, but I have no idea how to be a foot here, or I, I just don't really know where it means to be a foot anywhere, that's got to be really central to who we are as a church, that we learn how to identify the gifts that the Spirit has given us, how to use them, 
And then ultimately the most important thing is that we have to be a community of love. It's very easy for there to be participation motivated by greed, motivated by vanity, motivated by self-righteousness, motivated by judgmentalism, motivated by arrogance, motivated by fear, motivated by insecurity, that what needs to prompt us into this and guide us is love, love for God and love for one another. And so I just want to invite all of you, members, regular attenders, if you're new to our church and you're interested in sticking around, I hope that this is a conversation we have. And, And as we end, I really do want to say this, I could be wrong and I'm open to being wrong, But when I pray and when I think, there is nothing that I long for more than that we look more like this five years from now. I have no other ambition that, do I hope that we know the scriptures better? Absolutely. Do I hope that we pray more? Absolutely. Do I hope that we're more expressive in worship? Absolutely. Do I hope we have some families with kids? Definitely. Um, But there is nothing I desire more than five years from now that we would be able to say we look more like a community where everybody brings something and everybody is using it to build the rest of the community up than we do right now. And so I encourage you, if this speaks to you at all, if you see this in the New Testament, let's pray into this and let's dream regularly together as a community. And so to end, let me just read this one more time, starting in verse 11. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that you might build up the body of Christ until all of us attain to the unity of our faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature humanity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ until we can say with a straight face, we look like Jesus. There's still work to do. So that, on the one hand, negatively, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, every fad of human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather being truthful with one another in love, we are all to grow up together in every way into him who is our head into Christ Jesus, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped. Each of you with the gifts you have been given is equipped when each part is working properly and it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the central answer, I think, to what God is doing in the world. This is the central answer to what the kingdom of God looks like. This is the central answer to what the greatest problem and the greatest need in every moment of human history is. This is why we are here, Neighborhood Church, to be this and to participate in this. So let's pray.